Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. I'm joined from Chicago by Skype with the man whose name is on the podcast, Bill Crystal. How you doing, Bill? Hi, Eric. How are you? How are things back in D.C.? Good. They're rolling along, although there are some controversies that seem to be just simmering. Um, one of them, I'd, I'd like your take on this. Do you really think that Rex Tillerson called Donald Trump a moron? I think it's quite possible. I've heard myself of other uh, expressions by him, some of the others as well, but especially by Tillerson of exasperation with Trump and who knows what happened in that meeting and who he was talking to afterwards and who leaked that. Mike Warren from the Weekly Standard uh, suggested in his little piece Thursday morning that maybe it was Steve Bannon, who I think was at that meeting in the Pentagon and has since left the White House and probably was happy to stir up a lot of trouble between Tillerson, who I'm sure Bannon regards as an establishment, you know, lackey who's not on board the Bannon agenda at all, uh, and Trump himself. So, but uh, I, I was struck, as so many people were, that Tillerson's denial was not really a denial of having said that. He, he said it's too petty to address or whatever. So, uh, but I think there have been so many other instances. I mean, just that weekend before, it was almost more stunning uh, in the tweets when Trump uh, really dissed Tillerson, you know, come on, Rex, you know, Rex is a good guy, but uh, he'll never make any progress so dipl diplomatically with the North Koreans. I mean, uh, the degree of disrespect, both from the president for the secretary of state and by the secretary of state for the president is pretty astonishing. And you do wonder how much longer Rex Tillerson is going to be secretary of state. Right, and you also wonder exactly what is the strategy or goal of the president, if he has one, which is in doing so, he shows that the secretary of state isn't already sort of on the page with the president, which suggests to me that the president is not as powerful and commanding as he might want to think himself to be. I mean, he may think it shows, you know, he's uh, some bosses like sort of slapping down subordinates if they get a little out of line and I think the Tillerson relationship, he didn't know Tillerson at all when he made him Secretary of State. It was on the recommendation of people like Condi Rice and uh, Steve Hadley, uh, very much established Republicans. Tillerson obviously had been CEO of a huge company. I'm sure Trump sort of respected that. But I, I don't know that it's ever been a very, you know, close or warm relationship. And um, who knows with Trump, you know, he, he, he probably I don't think he doesn't think through I think one can overdo how important these things are. At the end of the day, it's not going to affect, uh, you know, fundamental judgments of our allies, I don't suppose. But, you know, every little bit helps in diplomacy and every little bit can hurt. And having a sense that the president just doesn't respect his own secretary of state, that when the secretary of state calls you on the phone or visits your capital and says, I think we can do this, this and this, you have to think in the back of your mind, I don't know, is he really speaking for the president? He could be undercut tomorrow. It does damage uh, American foreign policy some. George Saltz was interviewed by NPR this week. He's uh, got his memoirs reissued, at, and so he's kind of doing a book tour. Uh, but he was asked about this, and, and he said that when he was Secretary of State, he met with uh, Ronald Reagan twice a week in private and kind of got his marching orders and discussed things with Reagan, and they w got themselves on the same page twice a week. Yeah, that's impressive. I mean, Schultz and Weinberger, who was uh, Reagan's Secretary of Defense, had their disagreements. So, you know, administrations have their tensions. But um, I, I do think with Trump, it gets harder. And partly because he, he has his own views on foreign policy, which really aren't Tillerson's, partly just because of the personal uh, aspects of it. And, and then others who are happy to sow discord. So 
I guess uh, rumors a couple of weeks ago have been that Tillerson wanted to stay till January 20th, 2018. That would be a year. So that would be respectable, supposedly. And he'd sort of done his best for the country. I don't know. I talked to a couple of people yesterday who are pretty close to some people in the Trump administration, and they just wondered how how sort of uh, tenable this was over, you know, for more than just a few more weeks. So we could have another another job opening in the in the uh, in the Trump cabinet pretty soon. Although these things kind of come and go, you'll remember that it wasn't that long ago that the president was using his Twitter feed to slap down Jeff Sessions, and that seems to have kind of blown over. Yeah, it does. I and mean, we'll see if, it, if if the Mueller thing heats up and then Trump wants to fire Mueller and Sessions either won't do it or he's not, I guess, I guess he's recused, whether it all kind of comes roaring back. So it is, it's it's a soap opera and, and in a way one feels like, ugh, let's just focus on policy, not on, not on the soap opera. But uh, as in the real world, you can have good policies, but uh, even good policies can be uh, uh, less good, less effective. If the people implementing them are sort of pulling in different ways, getting distracted, sending mixed signals and and so forth. Well, policy and soap opera sometimes mingle. We saw this week um, after there have been lots of signals that uh, President Trump by October 15th would not certify that Iran was in compliance with the nuclear deal. Uh, We saw the Secretary of Defense up on Capitol Hill where he testified that he thought Iran was in compliance with the nuclear deal. Yeah, I think it's not quite as much of a contradiction as, as people are saying, because what, what Trump has to certify every 90 days, according to Corker Cardin, a, a law that President Obama signed, is several things, one of which is that the uh, deal remains in the national security interests of the United States, and others that we're confident that uh, uh, Iran is abiding by the deal in, in several ways. Uh, I, I think what Mattis is saying is what the seems to be the consensus of the administration. There's not clear evidence of violations of the deal. But because Iran doesn't make its military sites open, which they're not necessarily required to do in the deal, that's one reason it wasn't a good deal. We don't really know what's going on with parts of the Iranian nuclear program. And there is this national interest standard where you have to say the deal is in the national interest of the United States. And Trump doesn't think it is. So I actually think Trump is on very good ground on this. He just says, look, I cannot in good conscience certify this. That doesn't mean the deal gets blown up. It means under this law that Congress has an expedited uh, window in which to move some sanctions if they want to. What it really means is we need to sit down with the Europeans. We need to see if the Iranians are willing to negotiate and see if we can't strengthen this deal. Now, the Iranians will probably say no, because it's a good deal for them. And they think that the Europeans and the Democrats in the U.S. are going to kind of give them cover. And then it becomes a real diplomatic um, tug of war in a way with Trump trying to get some Democrats on board, trying to get the Europeans on board, threatening presumably at some point to maybe pull out the deal and try to reimpose uh, some more serious sanctions, try to pressure Iran also on other issues. H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, has done a whole review of Iran policy, which I'm told focuses quite a lot on what Iran's doing not in the nuclear area. And there, Iran's behavior has gotten worse. I mean, I've got to say, those of us who oppose the deal, nothing has happened to maybe make me rethink that. Iran's behavior on the ground in the region has been aggressive and, and irresponsible. Uh, on the nuclear side, it's not clear that the deal slowed them down much at all. Um, and so I, I think, uh, you know, we're not in a good situation. I mean, to be f- this is where I, uh, I'm for what President Trump is going to do, I think he's going to do, but we shouldn't kid ourselves that it's, you know, doing it is going to magically change everything overnight. That's the first step in a process of restoring American credibility and putting more pressure back on Iran, which unfortunately 
the Obama administration really gave away. And yet doing all of those things require robust diplomacy at a time to get back to our first topic, when the president is having a very public squabble with his secretary of state, which can't help the diplomatic efforts of the U.S. I mean, I agree. The strongest argument against the president pulling out, some people made to me privately, was, look, if Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or Scott Walker or someone were president, you know, when you had, a, so to speak, normal administration, uh, they could pull out, they could execute a diplomatic strategy. We don't know how it would turn out, but we'd have a reasonable shot at ending up better off than we were going in. Uh, with President Trump, you could imagine the whole thing kind of blowing up, Tillerson quits, uh, the Democrats say we're not doing anything in Congress, some Republicans desert. We end up looking even weaker because we sort of didn't certify and then we don't really do anything much. Or Trump is left with a very difficult choice of doing something alone without allies and without Congress. Um, so I, I, it's not a ridiculous argument. It gives me a little pause. I still think at the end of the day it's important enough to, uh, for the president to decertify that he should do it and he, he will. And that the administration works well enough, I think, on fundamental national security matters that it can pull in, in concert. I mean, McMaster, the national security advisor, has a big role here. Mattis' uh, defense is, is not, I mean, he's involved, of course, but he's not really, it's not, it's, this is not really centrally in his lane. The State Department could do a lot. That's a big question for Tillerson and for State. But McMaster's taking the lead on the Iran review and... Uh, yeah, I think it'll be a, if if this gets pulled off in any way that's reasonably effective, it would be a huge tribute to to McMaster. The president seems to also be at odds to some extent with Capitol Hill Republicans, and we saw this week that um, an aide to Vice President Pence told a bunch of big money GOP donors they should punish any lack of party loyalty by congressmen to Trump, um, and he made the mistake of saying all of these things while there was a, uh, somebody with a, a recording device, which is to say anybody these days has a recording device on them. So it's rather shocking that people in a public setting say things that might be embarrassing were they recorded. Yeah, maybe uh, Nick Ayers, uh, Vice President Pence's chief of staff, doesn't think it's embarrassing because this is probably what they sit around talking about at the White House. And to be fair, a lot of donors are exasperated. A lot of Republicans are exasperated. I still think it's a huge mistake and, and really inappropriate. I mean, some chief of staff to a vice president, that's what I was once you know, uh, trashing elected officials. They're voting presumably according to their best judgment of uh, what their constituents would want, or more importantly, what they think is right for the country. You can persuade them they're wrong. You can appeal to party loyalty, but they're not sent there to rubber stamp whatever president of their party or the majority leader of their party sends out. And that was very much the tone of what uh, Vice President Pence's chief of staff said. I think that will rub a lot of members of Congress the wrong way. Maybe they'll slough it off and maybe they're more intimidated by the notion of the donors cutting off money or activists uh, stopping to support them or primary challengers than by being annoyed at, at Nick Ayers. But I, 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 for me, it's part of the problem with the Trump White House. They just don't seem to understand that Congress really is an equal government. If they spend more, less time insulting congressmen and senators and more time working with them and getting them on board early, more time on the serious policy in some of these areas, taxes and health care, not just throwing something out and sort of assuming that all these guys are going to do it and, and vote for it, I, I think they might have better luck. So I think this might be another step in the fracturing of relations between the Trump White House and the Republicans in Congress. Of course, the Republicans in Congress uh, over the next year, we're going to have all these primaries for Senate and House seats. I mean, we'll be in a virtual civil war in the Republican Party. 
very hard to know how that plays out. I really, in the last few months of, of uh, I guess in the past, I, I sort of would have thought, you know, Trump's a very bizarre phenomenon in a way, but probably at the end of the day, the party ends up kind of back where it was or, or, or in some other place, but in a recognizable place. I, I guess I'm less confident of that today, and I really can't see the possibilities of uh, the party just fracturing and splitting, and maybe that's not a bad thing because uh, sometimes you need a fresh start. The Republican, the Trump, Trump Republicanism is not what I think is good for the country, but the Republican establishment is, is really weak and lame, I've got to say. It just seems kind of brain dead half the time. But the health care bill, now the tax bill, uh, these are not, these are just like stale. They may be marginally better than the status quo, but these are not bold reform ideas uh, for the 21st century. What's your sense of the GOP donor class? Are they likely to throw their money behind the Trump candidates or are they likely to throw their money behind establishment candidates? I think more establishment candidates, but they're also some of them are just exasperated and may sit it out. On the other hand, if they really see the prospect of the Democrats picking up the House and the Senate, I think a lot of them might come back. So it's hard to know. One of the other phenomenon of the last 10, 20 years has been the rise of the donors, the donor class. I mean, when I was in government politics 25 years ago, of course, donors have always been important. Uh, you know, there are millions of stories in American politics of politicians doing favors for big donors. But the degree to which the donors could sort of get together and really, um, you know, get the congressmen and senators kind of uh, not just get their attention, but sort of almost to drive the agenda and influence the whole way they're thinking. And it really has changed, partly because of the campaign finance and super PACs and, and so forth. Uh, not in a healthy way, I think. I mean, I like some of these donors are friends of mine. I'm, I, I have no problem with a lot of them individually, but it, there is they get a sense of entitlement themselves. And instead of thinking they're giving money to support people they admire and to advance policies, they therefore, they get a sense of why I gave this money. Why are these guys producing as if they've hired them to do something? But that's not the way that's not the way political contributions are supposed to work. And again, these senators and congressmen are supposed to vote their judgment and their conscience. And they're not really supposed to just hop to it if some big donor calls or if uh, even if the White House is for something. But judgment and conscience aren't words that one normally comes to you know, mind when one's thinking about Capitol Hill. And that was um, perhaps uh, brought particularly to the forefront this week when we see a Republican congressman who is anti-abortion, except when it involved his mistress um, having to leave his seat. Yeah, it was a, not a good week for, for American politics in that way. We have that Republican congressman quitting uh, because of that manifest hypocrisy, to say nothing just of the affair. And then a major Democratic donor and Hollywood liberal Harvey Weinstein exposed as a you know, a real pig in his treatment of women, apparently. And um, you know, one sort of feels that the, the hypocrisy, politics has always been a scene of hypocrisy and people doing things in private they wouldn't uh, want to talk about in public. But somehow those two incidents struck me as uh, uh, almost epitomizing the kind of corruption in, in, in both parties, which again makes me wonder, and, and this is of course Trump capitalized on this, so he himself is, is of course behaves terribly and has behaved terribly in many ways, but somebody who's the guy who's going to shake it all off, but I don't think he's going to really shake it off. He's not going to drain the swamp. And then what And then what happens? That really is the big question lurking, it seems to me, over American politics in 2017. Where are we in 2019 or 2020 if Trump has been sort of unsuccessful, not necessarily disastrous, but has not really changed things for the better. If the Democrats are 
doing their own thing and going off in a further left-wing direction. If the donors in both parties are whining and complaining and getting very upset, though, when, when they don't get their way, I mean, it could really be we, – we could be heading for a pretty big – crack up on multiple on multiple uh, so axes of, of politics, it seems to me. Buckle your seatbelt. We're in for a bumpy ride. Bill Crystal, thanks for joining us on the Crystal Clear Podcast. My pleasure, Eric. Support for the Crystal Clear Podcast comes from The Great Courses Plus. In these historically fascinating times, it's important to know how we got here. One way is by watching The Great Courses Plus. I have an unlimited access to their huge library of fascinating video lectures. I get to learn from engaging experts about the topics that interest me most, history, politics, even art and music. With The Great Courses Plus, stream and download videos to any device, watch wherever you want. One of the courses I've been watching is Privacy, Property, and Free Speech, Law and the Constitution, a lecture series featuring Professor Jeffrey Rosen, He talks about three hypothetical cases that could confront the U.S. Supreme Court in the decades ahead. Surveillance, designer embryos, and evidence from brain scans. Each has profound implications for privacy. It's a topic that's both important and timely. I know you'll get as much as I have out of The Great Courses Plus. Weekly Standard listeners get a full month of unlimited access to watch any of their lectures for free. But you need to sign up through our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. Start watching today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. We hope you join us again next week and catch all the podcasts in between here at weeklystandard.com. I'm Eric Felton. Thanks for listening.